Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're talking about CBD and skin conditions with Dr. Adam J. Friedman, Professor and Chair of the Department of Dermatology here at GW. He's the founding director of the GW Dermatology Residency Program, director of translational research in the Department of Dermatology, and director of the Supportive Oncodermatology Program at the GW Cancer Center. Dr. Friedman is the co-chair and medical director of the ODAC Dermatology Aesthetic and Surgical Conference, one of the biggest ones in the country, serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology, hosts the journal's podcast, and is the senior editor of Derman Review and the chair of the Derman Review Advisory Council. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Friedman. Thanks so much for having me. I, I love that you threw the J in there. That, that was a, a nice new touch. <laughs> Adam J. Friedman, that was, that was great. I, I love it. Thank you so much for having me. This is, this is going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess we'll just get right to it. Uh, We've done a a couple of episodes about medical cannabis. Um, We've also done one about uh, holistic treatment of of skin conditions where we actually talked about how uh, people were just throwing CBD and things left and right and not not (laughs) necessarily using any science behind it. Um, So we're going to look forward to talking about that. But first, how did you become interested in the endocannabinoid system? So I, I would say, like, any really good science, totally by accident. Um, I, uh, I can remember clearly, I was sitting in my office, and one of my former residents, Dr. Liz Robinson, eagerly and excitedly ran to my office with a, with a, a edition of the jur- a Journal of Investigative Dermatology, which is the top scientific journal in, in the derm world, uh, to show me uh, a paper she recently published on using a synthetic cannabinoid at the time called agilinic acid, now named lenabasum, uh, and its utility in the preclinical space, meaning in cell lines, uh, for the potential treatment of, of dermatomyositis. And, and this was work she had done prior to starting her residency at, at Penn with uh, Dr. Victoria Worf, uh, who has actually done quite a bit uh, in the uh, derm room world when it comes to, uh, to cannabinoid uh, manipulation uh, and development. And so I'm looking at this paper, and she's talking about, and of course, like anyone, whether it be physician or consumer, you hear cannabinoid, and already your eyebrow starts to kind of go up. You're like, oh, interesting, really? Mm-hmm. You know, there's that allure to it, which is probably one of the reasons we have some issues with respect to some of those products that you were mentioning. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm reading this paper, and it, just as she suggested, this synthetic cannabinoid could suppress the production of immune signals from immune cells from dermatomyositis patients that were pissed off, that were stimulated. Um, it, was, it was fascinating. And so I started to dive a little bit deeper. And one of the first things I, I learned and realized was that cannabinoids are hard to deliver. You know, these are lipophilic molecules, meaning they love fatty environments. And when you think about topical drug delivery, which of course, as a dermatologist, is going to think about, that's very limiting both, both in the vehicle, you know, the cream or ointment you utilize, but also will it actually get through the skin? Because even if you have your best active ingredient, if it doesn't penetrate the outer layer called the stratum corneum, it's not really going to do a whole lot. And that's where the gears really start turning because in another life and probably still this one, 
Um, I, I spend some of my time as a uh, nanotechnologist. Um, I, I do nanotechnology drug development. And, and really one of the key tenets of nanotechnology is delivering the undeliverables. And so I saw a possible marriage between my own research interests and an, an area that I immediately knew would be rapidly growing and evolving. And, uh, and, and like always, I was right, because it is certainly a, a fledgling <laughs> and emerging field uh, in, in dermatology. So to recap, totally by accident, but I'm very happy it happened. Excellent. Well, we're glad it happened, too, because we need someone to tell us about this. So we alluded to CBD and, and absolutely everything under the sun, really. But if you go to a skincare store now, uh, it's, it seems like it's in almost every product. Um, so what, what is the real potential of CBD for treating, managing uh, dermatological conditions? Yeah, so you've hit on a, a kind of big problem that is probably undermining the credibility of the space even further. So when you know the farm bill hit in, in 2018, it pretty much said that anything hemp-derived, which is from the kind of the root of, of the plant of the flower, uh, also meaning less than 0.3% THC, that that was now legal. And you could put it literally in everything from creams, lotions, potions, elixirs, teas, ice cream. I don't know why you put in ice cream, but you can. Um you know, so all of a sudden overnight, countless companies came out of nowhere and were putting in everything, saying could do everything without any science behind it. And they could get away with it because of that allure I mentioned, because people would see CBD rich or hemp derived CBD cream for blah, 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 and they would buy it just on the allure alone. And so I think that's really hindered our ability to get, you know, a, a credible space here. But taking a step back and thinking about what does cannabidiol do for the skin, uh, the answer is potentially a whole lot. So CBD um, is the kind of, the best way to kind of put it, it is the plant-derived cannabinoid that will bind to one of two well-described receptacles in the endocannabinoid system. That means our system that right now all three of us are churning out you know, endocannabinoids for God knows how many reasons. They're binding to the receptors and doing a whole bunch of fun things. But anyway... CBD specifically binds to the CB2 receptor, which is the receptor found on immune organs like the spleen, um, the thymus, but expressed by probably every immune cell, as well as skin cells um, and, and structures deeper in the skin. And simply put, when CBD binds to the CB2 receptor, that is predominantly, once again, expressed in the immune system, um, it can shut down inflammation. That's probably the simplest way to think about it. To stay, take it a step further, we need to actually dive into a parallel kind of system called the resolvent system. And as the name infers, the resolvent system is involved in the pro-resolution, meaning the complete resolution of inflammation, which is a multifaceted, uh, multi-parallel kind of track. And we have a whole bunch of little resolvent molecules. One is called resolvent, lipoxin, hydrogen disulfide. And these little molecules, when they hit their receptor in this in this system, they signal for cells, immune cells, to stop leaving the blood vessels and entering organs like the skin. They will tell cells that are angry and chomping away at everything to move to a different type of their immune cell, which is more restorative and regenerative. So a lot of things kind of happen at once when these, these little molecules bind to their receptors. Now, it turns out that one of the key receptors in the system called GPR18, which is a G-protein couple receptor, to which cannabinoids can also bind, well, guess what? Cannabinoids can bind to them, like CBD, can bind to this receptor. And they're actually pushing to make GPR18 
to be the third true cannab- endocannabinoid receptor, even though it, it wasn't previously described in terms of CB2R, which I mentioned, and the CB1 receptor, which is in the central nervous system. So it's more than just anti-inflammatory, which is what our minds are so you know, focused on, is like you know, blocking a signal, blocking the receiver for that signal. When you activate this pathway utilizing a cannabinoid like CBD, you don't just shut down inflammation, you actually push the immune system in the direction of actually restoring and repairing, um, which I, I can't think of any other drug out there that can actually do this. Um, now, this is all from a biological standpoint. Have we been able to show this in the human system? We're getting there. And I'm happy to go in a little bit, but at least with CBD, it's still kind of early. Wow, that's that's fantastic. I love seeing the science evolve like this. It actually reminds me of the early days of nutrition when we were still discovering vitamins, right? Um, we didn't even know that, well, actually, even recently, we didn't know there was a vitamin K2. So we're going to continue to find out more about the endocannabinoid system, I think, for quite a long time. Um, and it's definitely promising. And I think your focus on the fact that this is more than just an anti-inflammatory and able to change the way the immune system works and bringing it back to that homeostasis state without having some of the negative effects of a lot of the other uh, types of treatments, for instance, immunosuppressants have on the immune system. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, we, I, I focus so much on inflammation and, and, and no question when we think about CBD and its receptor CB2R, which is on immune cells, CBD, because it can bind to these G-protein couple receptors, these are everywhere. So actually CBD, we didn't think it would do this, but actually it can impart a, uh, a benefit on pain, on itch, through other receptors like vanillinoid receptors, also known as trip B receptors. Um, it can have an effect on serotonin receptors, dopamine receptors. Um, it can have an effect on uh, the production of inhibitory signals like GABA. So, so there's a lot for us to learn. And I think the reason we're, we're in our infancy is because of the fact that Every cannabinoid from the cannabis plant was considered a legal substance. Schedule one for so long, it hindered research and development. I mean, really, we've only been able to gain access to plant-derived or phytocannabinoids uh, uh, recently without having a DEA and having, you know, God knows how much how much paperwork. Which is probably one of the reasons why there's been more research in the kind of endocannabinoid space, uh, endocannabinoids like anandamide or AEA, and then of course synthetics, where you take hopefully the best parts of the cannabinoids that we understand and purposely design them in the lab for an intended uh, clinical uh, impact. I'm really glad you brought up the, the synthetics because I think that's one of the, the hot topics around medical cannabis is do you need something that's broad spectrum or is something targeted still going to work? Has that been explored in the skin? <laughs> yeah, um, that, that is one of the million dollar questions because it's, this is not as simple as saying, do I choose CBD or THC? It's, do I combine them? And at what ratios? And, oh, wait, what therapeutic target am I thinking about that will make that meaningful? And that's just two of God knows how many from, uh, you know, from the plant. Same goes for, for synthetics. You, know, you can make synthetic cannabinoids that target only one receptor or actually both. And those already exist. And there are some really cool papers, even in, in journals like the Journal of Clinical Investigation, which is like the scientific or translational journal out there, probably has the highest impact factor, or at least certainly did, um, looking at both combo synthetics or synthetics that target one receptor for things as thinking of skin, 
uh, targeting acne, targeting non-melanoma skin cancer? Um, the answer is we don't know. And I know that was a very long-winded way of getting there. We don't know what the best combo is. And I think once again, it goes back to the fact that we haven't been able to really investigate that fully. And at the end of the day, what it's going to require is buy-in, not just from physicians, not just from scientists, but from federal funding sources and industry. And I would, I'd probably put more emphasis on industry because they're the ones who are really going to invest the dollars to get a better understanding of this. Dr. Friedman, what is the current best evidence for dermatologists to incorporate topical CBD into their treatment and or management strategies for patients? So I think first things first, knowledge is power. And so even having a basic understanding of the endocannabinoid system and what CBD can do if delivered the right way, I think is important. You know, we published a paper uh, I gotta say, maybe a couple of years back in the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology, and it was a survey study of roughly maybe 550 dermatologists across the country, uh, asking them about their perceptions and fund of knowledge of, of cannabinoids in the dermatology space. And I want to say that over 30% of respondents thought that CBD was psychoactive, which it isn't, uh, and an even larger percentage said they weren't sure. And, and that one data point highlights there's a tremendous gap in, in understanding and education. And so before you can make a recommendation, you have to kind of know what you're talking about, especially in today's world where our patients are super savvy. They turn to Dr. Google, God knows how many times a day, and they bring in the, when they did come into the office, they have printouts and handouts. Oh, Dr. Google is our arch nemesis. I believe uh, went to online medical school um, and is is wanted in multiple states for malpractice suits. Um, You know, so, so I think, you know, I mentioned knowledge is power. Too much information sometimes is difficult, and finding reputable sources of information can be hard nowadays. And, and so I, I think it's important for physicians to be armed with even a basic fund of knowledge when it comes to cannabinoids and what they do and how they function in, in the body. So that's number one. Number two, so follow the evidence is always our mantra. And even in the last couple of years, we have seen not just that preclinical, that cell line or animal data coming out, but we actually have seen some clinical data emerging, even just in the last couple of months. For example, uh, there were two back-to-back small clinical studies published in two different dermatology journals using a CBD gel for the treatment of eczema. And while these were small studies, so you have to take it with a grain of salt, the investigators used uh, standard metrics for evaluating efficacy, not just how did the patient look, but even more importantly, which I stress all the time, how does the patient feel? You know, patient-reported outcomes, PROs, I think are more important than any investigator global assessment or validated research tool because if the patient doesn't like the experience, even though the drug works, they're not going to use it, so who cares? So, Excellent um, point. You know, I, I give the investigators a lot of credit. They, they showed a pretty substantial impact on quality of life in, in both cases. And, and this was the first time we had studies like this really in the, in the DERM literature. Uh, and this was the topical formulations from the systemic world. You know, I mentioned lenabesum, which is a, a synthetic cannabinoid. Um, there, there are several clinical pipelines of targeting orphan diseases. I mentioned dermatomyositis, which is in a phase three study. From there, we get a lot of information about how how cannabinoids, especially synthetic cannabinoids, in this respect, they can work in the endocannabinoid system and can impact a really disabling chronic autoimmune disease. And that can give us some insight in terms of how to lateralize this for, for other diseases. 
So, so I, I think we're getting more information, um, not enough yet to say, use this product over this one for XYZ indication, um, but we're headed there. I think from a practical standpoint, my advice is making sure someone's not using something that will hurt them, right? Because we have to protect our patients at the end of the day. And so when I get these questions, I say, all right, well, whatever product you're looking at, go to their website if they have a website and try to find their quality assurance statement or their testing statement in terms of what they do to ensure that, A, the amount of CBD in your product is actually the amount that it says, because there was a JAMA paper showing that out of 86 products, uh, close to half of them did not have the amount of CBD in them that were stated on the label. And two, I'm trying to get into what... I mean, it's such the case. It's nuts. I mean, these companies are getting away with, with, with uh, marketing murder is the best way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard that before. Yeah, that's a good one. I, that, that was on the fly. I mean, that 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 is a GW Integrative Podcast original. You can say <laughs> there like you that. go. <laughs> you heard um, it here first, guys. You heard it here first. You know, I, I think that you want to get as much information from the company, and it may not be on the website. So if it's not, call the company. And if they won't give you that information, you have your answer there. Um, no, I can say, and, and I will give my disclosures here, there are several companies that I've worked with uh, that I know um, are producing a product that it is what it says it is, and they've actually have some both anecdotal and maybe clinical evidence uh, utilizing their products. You know, there's one company, um, and, and please correct me if I, I, if I can't talk about companies um, on, on this podcast, uh, but my, my conflict is I do support them, but I get no money whatsoever. So I guess there's no financial conflict of interest because that would require some funding. Um, but, um, there's a company called Greenway Therapeutics that has a, um, nanoscale CBD where they actually crush up the CBD to the nanoscale. So it's not a delivery technology. The CBD itself is at the nanoscale, which then kind of overcomes some limitations of skin penetration, getting through that barrier. Um, and, and they have some nice anecdotal evidence that their product can be useful for chronic inflammatory diseases like eczema, um, like irritant contact dermatitis from, for example, washing your hands 500 times a day in the setting of a pandemic, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then going the route of, you know, delivery matters, um, being someone in the nanotechnology space, I've been able to collaborate, um, with a, uh, cannabinoid company based out of California to utilize a nanotechnology platform that I invented to deliver both THC coming out of the dispensary kind of space, but also, uh, hemp drive CBD that's available nationwide, but I'm not going to mention the name of that product uh, for prosperity's sake. Um, but this is more taking ingredients and making them meaningful by purposeful design of how you deliver them. And we have some really nice uh, animal data showing penetration and, of course, how that translates from a clinical perspective. So I think at the end of the day, three simple words show me, damn, the science. It's actually four words. Show me the science. So four words, not three words. My apologies. Um, I'm a doctor. I guess I can't count, um, <laughs> you know, but I think that that really encompasses the science behind the claims, but also the science behind ensuring that the products are safe and that what's on the label is actually in there. So Adam, I have a follow-up question for you because I think that, um, probably a fair number of the people in our audience are hesitant about nanoproducts and maybe some of them actually flat out afraid of things on the nanoscale. Can you speak to that? Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. So, yeah, there was actually this great New York Times article, I want to say it was like 2009, uh, about the, the nano scare and the fear of, of nanomaterial. So let's first define what that is. So nano refers to a size. It refers to a billionth of a meter that is invisible to the naked eye. And, and why we even care about the nano scale 
is because when you shrink a material, you know, let's say, t- take an orange. If you were to shrink an orange down to the nanoscale, as you make it smaller and smaller, the surface of that orange exponentially increases compared to the overall volume, you know, kind of the makeup of that orange. And, and when you think about surface area to volume ratios, as you increase that surface area and you decrease volume, you actually make the reactivity of that surface greater, which means that it's going to interact with the environment with, with, with greater power than something at its bulk scale. And because biology functions at the nano scale, for the most part, you know, uh, DNA, atoms, these are at the nano scale. Um, if you are employing materials at this level, the likelihood of you getting your target, interacting with target, is going to be greater when you're smaller. You know, think of it this way. If you had a giant dart in a tiny bullseye, you're not going to hit it. If you had a tiny dart in a giant bullseye, you're going to have a greater likelihood of hitting because it's this massive, giant red circle, and you're throwing this tiny little dart. So that's the kind of mentality of, of nanomaterials. Second to that, at this scale, matter behaves differently. Everything we think about matter, whether it be the chemical properties, the visible properties, the physical, um, optical, all these, they are altered at the nanoscale, and they behave very differently. So for, for those in the audience uh, who have a, a medical or engineering background, van der Waals forces, which, you know, in med school, they're like, ah, don't worry about these guys. They do nothing. They're very weak. At the nanoscale, they're actually very strong. Something that is rock hard, like a diamond, at the bulk scale, the nanoscale could be soft like cheese. So knowing this, you can actually manipulate a material at the scale to fit your intended purpose. And that's where kind of meaningful design comes in. Now, from the safety perspective, given you're dealing with material that's at the scale of biology, if you were to take something like, I don't know, anthrax, and you made it nanoscale, you're going to make it that more deadlier. So it's not an all or none type of thing that just because something is nano does not mean it's dangerous. It's all about you know, what it is you're dealing with. And and I would also argue to those folks who are concerned, we have all been exposed to nanoparticles forever. If you were to take a silver spoon and put it down on a table in just normal temperature, like a day like today, nanoparticles of silver would spontaneously come off of that spoon and we would be exposed to them. You know, they're, they're naturally made nanoparticles. So we've been exposed to nanoparticles forever. It's more about what is that nanoparticle made of, what is its shape, what's its charge, and all, all those things. Um, you know, when, when we think about really safety in dermatology, what has come up has been the safety of nanosunscreens, which have been around for some time. So these are going to be nanoscaled zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. And the concern that everyone raises is more theoretical, but it's this. If you had nano-zinc, and it was able to get through the skin barrier, like I mentioned, and it was taken into a cell. It could create free radicals that could damage DNA and cause harm, which could do a whole bunch of different things. And this is all theoretical. What has been shown time and again and again, even in living, breathing humans in real time, using really cool technologies like confocal Raman spectroscopy, that nanoscale zinc and titanium that are commercially available do not penetrate the skin. They stay on the top layer, right. even in disease skin. And to, it's, it's so much so that in Europe, they have said uniformly that, one, you have to label their nanomaterials in your sunscreen, but they are generally regarded as safe unless they're in a spray sunscreen, which you could possibly inhale, and we just don't know the safety of it. So I, I think we've actually have answered through science the question that nanoscale sunscreens are actually safe and probably more effective because by making a zinc or titanium at the nanoscale, it does not scatter visible light as much. And so that 
bright white we all remember from that lifeguard with that bright white nose, you're not going to see that bright white color. And so the cosmesis of sunscreens are better. That means people will wear them more frequently. And the best sunscreen is one you will reapply throughout the day. So I think actually nanoscale sunscreens will enhance our ability to prevent skin cancer and, and accelerate skin aging and are actually very safe. I hope that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, that's ex- exactly what I was getting at. So thank you so much for that. Um, <clears throat> rela- related to that, <clears throat> what other types of research are, are we either awaiting or what's, what's the, the latest research out there on the endocannabinoid system and CBD right now? Yeah, so you know, I kind of mentioned there, there are a, a bunch of companies that have taken interest, and there are several clinical pipelines uh, going after eczema, acne, rosacea. Uh, you know, it's funny. There have been several animal studies that have been published for some time looking at CBD in, in many different clinical arenas, even in, in malignancy, and published in high-level journals, but no, nothing has come of it, probably due to uh, the regulatory environment, and that certainly has changed. You know, I can certainly drought, drought. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 actually the wild west now. It's almost gone the other side. You know, it's gone <laughs> to the other side of the pendulum. You know, and, and actually, to that effect, the FDA has issued, I think, roughly 80, 90 warnings to various companies for overstating uh, their their marketing claims for some of these products. You know, in the endocannabinoid system, I can talk speak to some of my own research. So, I I have been working at the bench with AEA anandamide which can activate both CB1 and CB2 receptors and probably other G-protein couple receptors. And I'm targeting an orphan disease in dermatology, which is cutaneous lupus erythematosus. So lupus is an autoimmune disease. Uh, and when it's systemic, it affects probably every organ system. And by definition, it has to affect several. But there are actually a lot of patients who get skin-only disease. And this skin disease is extraordinarily disabling and has some really horrible permanence in terms of disfigurement. Mm-hmm. And there, as of right now, there's not a single FDA-approved drug for cutaneous lupus. You know, we use things off-label. We use topical steroids. We use systemic immunosuppressants, like you mentioned, that come with a lot of baggage. And um, the reason why I've turned my focus, separate from it being orphan disease, and, and it certainly is a hurdle and challenge in that respect, and I love a good challenge, lupus may, in fact, be the first documented disease of endocannabinoid dysfunction. And what I mean by this, it's been shown that the proteins that regulate the breakdown of endocannabinoids, like AEA, AEA and, and 2-AG is another one, the protein called FAAH that kind of breaks them down in a kind of you know really well-controlled manner, this protein is overactive. It's overexpressed. And so patients with lupus, they're making cannabinoids, but they don't last long. And so they don't actually get to do what they're meant to do. And so the idea here is to supplement and to give that back to the skin where it's needed. But once again, you have to get through that skin barrier. And so we're employing nanotechnology to do that. And, and we actually, we're, we're actually about to submit a paper on this where we use a well-validated mouse model of lupus where these mice, I kid you not, they develop full-blown systemic lupus. They get lupus nephritis, which is kidney disease. Uh, they have serum markers of lupus, but they also develop skin lupus, which we actually characterized in collaboration with rheumatology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine years ago. And we were able to, A, prevent the development of skin lesions, which all these animals get, um, applying it to the skin twice a week. But also, we allowed the animals to develop lesions and then treated it same way twice a week. And we could clear them, but only using the nanoparticles. If we just threw anandamide and coconut oil on the skin, did absolutely nothing. So that highlights that mantra 
vehicle matters, delivery matters, not just, you know, actually, I'd say it's almost more important than what you're delivering in some respects. Um, so, so we're hopeful that this is going to be something that will be available in, in the near future, given the delivery technology is, is safe to use, has been validated in humans. Anandamide is derived from arachidonic acid, and we make it. We're all making it right now. So that, that's kind of one small piece of the overall cannabinoid puzzle. Um, but, but I would say, and, and, and I hope people are excited about this, this is a buzzing area. I think there's a lot going on, not just in dermatology. I think it's, there's stuff going on in every probably in every field. And uh, I would say stay tuned because it's coming fast. Well, I'm really glad I asked you that question. Uh, Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us, Adam. We really learned a lot. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.